Sufism from A Dictionary of Islam by Thomas Patrick Hughes, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Sufism, Part 2. Section 8. Sufism Adapted to Mohammedanism. A clear and intelligible exposition of the principles of Sufism or Oriental Spiritualism is given by Muhammad al-Misri, a Sufi of the Ilhamiyya school of thought, in the following categorical form translated by Mr. J. P. Brown in the Journal of the American Oriental Society. It represents more particularly the way in which this form of mysticism is adapted to the stern and dogmatic teachings of Islam. Question. What is the beginning of a tasawwuf? Answer. Iman, or faith, of which there are six pillars, namely, number one, belief in God, number two, in his angels, number three, in his books, number four, in his prophets, number five, in the last day, and number six, in his decree of good and evil. Question. What is the result of Atasawwaf? Answer. It is not only the reciting with the tongue these pillars of faith, but also establishing them in the heart. This was the reply made by the Murshid Junaidu al-Baghdadi in answer to the same question. Question. What is the distinction between a Sufi and an ordinary person? Answer. The knowledge of an ordinary person is but imanu taqlidi, or a counterfeit faith, whereas that of the Sufi is imanu al-tahqiqi, or true faith. Question. What do you mean by counterfeit faith? Answer. It is that which an ordinary person has derived from his forefathers or from the teachers and preachers of his own day without knowing why it is essential that a man should believe in these six articles for his soul's salvation. For example, a person may be walking in the public streets and find a precious jewel which, perhaps, kings had sought for in vain, and rulers who had conquered the whole world had sought for and yet had not found. But in this precious jewel he has found that which is more effulgent than the sun when it is so bright that it obscures the lesser light of the moon or even he has found an alchemy which can convert copper into gold. And yet, perhaps, the finder knows not the value of the precious jewel, but thinks it a counterfeit jewel, and one which he would give away even for a drink of water if he were thirsty. Question. What is the establishment of faith? Answer. The establishment of faith consists in a search being made for the true origin of each of these six pillars of faith until the inquirer arrives at al-haqiqa, the truth. Many persons pursue the journey for ten or twenty or thirty or even forty years and, wandering away from the true path, enter upon the path of error, and hence there are known to be seventy-three ways, only one of which is the way of salvation. Cross-reference, sects. 
at last, by a perfect subjection to the teaching of the murshid, or guide, they find out the value of the lost jewel which they have found, and their faith becomes manifest. And you might say that, with the light of a lamp, they have reached the sun. They then find out that the tariqa, or journey of the Sufi, is consistent with the sharia, or law of Islam. Question. In matters of faith and worship, to what sect are the Sufis attached? Answer. To this reply the author says, speaking of course of his own people, that they are chiefly of the Sunni sect, but he does not notice that mystic doctrines are more prevalent amongst the Shias. Question. When Bayezid al-Bastami was asked of what sect he was, he replied, I am of the sect of Allah. What did he mean? Answer. The sects of Allah are the four orthodox sects of Islam. Here our author departs from true Sufi teaching. Question. Most of the Sufis in their poems use certain words which we hear and understand as showing that they were of the metempsychoseans. They say, I am sometimes lot, sometimes a vegetable, sometimes an animal, at other times a man. What does this mean? Answer. Brother, the prophet has said, my people in the future life will rise up in companies, that is, some as monkeys, others as hogs, or in other forms, as is written in a verse of the Quran, Surah 78, 18, Ye shall come in troops, which has been commented on by al-Bedawi, who cites a tradition to the effect that, at the resurrection, men will rise up in the form of those animals whose chief characteristics resemble their own ruling passions in life. The greedy, avaricious man as a hog, the angry, passionate man as a camel, the tail-bearer or mischief-maker as a monkey. For though these men while in this life, bore the human form externally, they were internally nothing different from the animals whose characters are in common with their own. The resemblance is not manifest during the life, but becomes so in the other existence, after the resurrection. Let us avoid such traits. Repentance before death will free us from these evils. The prophet said that with regard to this, sleep is the brother of death. The dying man sees himself in his true character and so knows whether or not he is, by repentance, freed from his ruling passion of life. In like manner he will see himself during his slumbers, still following in the path of his passions. For instance, the money calculator in sleep sees himself engaged in his all-absorbing occupation, and this fact is a warning from God not to allow himself to be absorbed in any animal passion or degrading occupation. It is only by prayerful repentance that anyone can hope to see himself in his sleep delivered from his ruling carnal passion and restored to his proper human intellectual form. 
If in your slumbers you see a monkey, consider it as a warning to abandon or abstain from the passion of mischief. If a hog, cease to seize upon the goods of others, and so on. Go and give yourself up to an upright murshid, or spiritual guide, who will, through his prayers, show you in your slumbers the evil parts of your character, until one by one they have passed away, and have been replaced by good ones, all through the power of the name of God, whom he will instruct you to invoke. Cross-reference, Zikr. At length you will only see in your slumbers the forms of holy and pious men, in testimony of that degree of piety to which you will have attained. This is what is meant by that expression of certain poets, referring to one's condition previous to the act of repentance, when the writer says, I am sometimes an animal, sometimes a vegetable, sometimes a man. And the same may be said by the Sufis in application to themselves as of any other part of creation, for man is called Akhiru al-Mawjudat, or the climax of beings, for in him are comprised all the characteristics of creation. Many mystical books have been written on this subject all showing that man is the larger part and the world the smaller part of God's creation. The human frame is said to comprise all the other parts of creation, and the heart of man is supposed to be even more comprehensive than the rainbow, because when the eyes are closed, the mental capacity can take in the whole of a vast city, though not seen by the eyes, it is seen by the capacious nature of the mind. Among such books is the Hawth al-Hayat, or the Well of Life, which says that if a man closes his eyes, ears, and nostrils, he cannot take cold that the right nostril is called the sun, and the left the moon, that from the former he breathes heat, and from the latter cold air. Question. Explain the distinctive opinions of the Sufis in Al-Tanasuch, or the transmigration of souls. Answer. O oh, brother, our teaching regarding Al-Barzakh, Quran 23.102, has nothing whatever to do with Al-Tanasuch. Of all the erring sects in the world, those who believe in metempsychosis or transmigration of souls is the very worst. Question. The Sufis regard certain things as lawful which are forbidden. For instance, they enjoy the use of wine, wine shops, the wine cup, sweethearts, they speak of the curls of their mistresses and the moles on their faces, cheeks, etc., and compare the furrows on their brows to verses of the Quran. What does this mean? Answer. The Sufis often exchange the external features of all things for the internal, the corporeal for the spiritual, and thus give an imaginary signification to outward forms. They behold objects of a precious nature in their natural character, and for this reason the greater part of their words have a spiritual and figurative meaning. 
For instance, when, like Hafez, they mention wine, they mean a knowledge of God, which, figuratively considered, is the love of God. Wine, viewed figuratively, is also love. Love and affection are here the same thing. The wine shop, with them, means the Murshid al-Kamil, or spiritual director, for his heart is said to be the depository of the love of God. The wine cup is the Talqin, or the pronunciation of the name of God in a declaration of faith, as there is no God but Allah, or it signifies the words which flow from the Murshid's mouth, respecting divine knowledge, and which, when heard by the Salik, or one who pursues the true path, intoxicates his soul and divests his heart of passions, giving him pure spiritual delights. The sweetheart means the excellent preceptor, because when anyone sees his beloved, he admires her perfect proportions with a heart full of love. The Salik beholds the secret knowledge of God which fills the heart of his spiritual preceptor, or Murshid, and through it receives a similar inspiration and acquires a full perception of all that he possesses, just as the pupil learns from his master. As the lover delights in the presence of his sweetheart, so the Salik rejoices in the company of his beloved Murshid or preceptor. The sweetheart is the object of a worldly affection, but the preceptor of a spiritual attachment. The curls or ringlets of the beloved are the grateful praises of the preceptor, tending to bind the affections of the disciple. The moles on her face signify that when the pupil at times beholds the total absence of all worldly wants on the part of the preceptor, he also abandons all the desires of both worlds. He perhaps even goes so far as to desire nothing else in life than his preceptor, the furrows on the brow of the beloved one, which they compare to verses of the Qur'an, mean the light of the heart of the Murshid. They are compared to verses of the Qur'an because the attributes of God, in accordance with the injunction of the Prophet, be ye endued with divine qualities, are possessed by the Murshid. Question. The Murshids and their disciples often say, We see God. Is it possible for anyone to see God? Answer. It is not possible. What they mean by this assertion is that they know God, that they see His power, for it is forbidden to mortal eyes to behold Him, as is declared in the Quran, Surah 6, 103. No sight reaches him. He reaches the sight, the subtle, the knowing. The Prophet commanded us to adore God as thou wouldst didst thou see him, for if thou dost not see him, he sees thee. This permission to adore him is a divine favor, and they say that they are God's servants by divine favor. Ali said, Should the veil fall from my eyes, how would God visit me in truth? This saying proves that no one really sees God, 
and that even the sainted Ali never saw him. Question. Can it possibly be erroneous to say that, by seeing the traces of anyone, he may be beheld? Answer. One may certainly be thus seen. When any person sees the brightness of the sun, he may safely say that he has seen the sun, though indeed he has not really seen it. There is another example, namely, should you hold a mirror in your hand, you see a figure in it, and you may therefore say that you see your own face, which is really an impossibility, for no one has ever seen his own face, and you have asserted what is not strictly correct. Question. Since everyone sees the traces of God, as everyone is able to do, how is it that the Sufis declare that they only see him? Answer. Those who make this statement do not know what they see, for they have never really seen him. A person who has eaten of a sweet and savory dish given to him, but of which he knows not the name, seeks for it again with a longing desire after it, and thus wanders about in search of what has given him so much delight, even though he be ignorant of what it really was. So are those who seek after God without knowing him or what he is. Question. Some Sufis declare, we are neither afraid of hell, nor do we desire heaven, a saying which must be blasphemous. How is this? Answer. They do not really mean that they do not fear hell, and that they do not wish for heaven. If they really meant this, it would be blasphemous. Their meaning is not as they express themselves. Probably they wish to say, O Lord, Thou who createdst us, and madest us what we are, Thou hast not made us, because we assist Thy workings. We are in duty bound to serve Thee all the more devotedly, wholly in obedience to Thy holy will. We have no bargaining with Thee, and we do not adore Thee, with the view of gaining thereby either heaven or hell. As it is written in the Quran, Surah 9, 1, 12, Verily God hath bought of the believers their persons and their wealth, for the paradise they are to have, which means that his bounty has no bounds, his mercy no end, and thus it is that he benefits his faithful servants. They would say, Thou hast no bargaining with anyone. Our devotion is from the sincerity of our hearts, and is for love of thee only. Were there no heaven nor any hell, it would still be our duty to adore thee. To thee belongs the perfect right to put us either in heaven or in hell, and may thy commands be executed agreeably to thy blessed will. If thou puttest us in heaven, it is through thine excellence, not on account of our devotion. If thou puttest us in hell, it is from out of thy great justice, and not from any arbitrary decision on thy part. So be it for ever and for ever. This is the true meaning of the Sufis when they say they do not desire heaven or fear hell. 
question, thou saidst that there is no conflict between the Sharia law and the Hakika truth, and nothing in the latter inconsistent with the former, and yet these two are distinguished from one another by a something which the Ahl al-Hakika, believers in the truth, conceal. Were there nothing conflicting, why should it be thus hidden? Answer. If it be concealed, it is not because there is a contrariety to the law, but only because the thing hidden is contrary to the human mind. Its definition is subtle and not understood by everyone, for which reason the prophet said, Speak to men according to their mental capacities, for if you speak all things to all men, some cannot understand you and so fall into error. The Sufis, therefore, hide some things conformably with this precept. Question. Should anyone not know the science which is known to the Sufis and still do what the law plainly commands and be satisfied therewith, would his faith in Islam be less than that of the Sufis? Answer. No. He would not be inferior to the Sufis. His faith and Islam would be equal even to that of the prophets, because Iman and Islam are a jewel which admits of no division or separation into parts, and can neither be increased nor diminished, just as the portion of the sun enjoyed by a king and by a faqir is the same, or as the limbs of the poor and the rich are equal in number just as the members of the body of the king and the subject are precisely alike, so is the faith of the Muslim the same in all and common to all, neither greater nor less in any case. Question. Some men are prophets, saints, pure ones, and others fasics, who know God but perform none of his commands. What difference is there among them? Answer. The difference lies in their ma'rifah, or knowledge of spiritual things, but in the matter of faith they are all equal, just as, in the case of the ruler and the subject, their limbs are all equal, while they differ in their dress, power, and office. Section 9. Sufi Poetry the very essence of Sufism is poetry, and the Eastern mystics are never tired of expatiating on the ishq, or love to God, which is the one distinguishing feature of Sufi mysticism. The Mesnavi, which teaches in the sweetest strains that all nature abounds with love divine, that causes even the lowest plant to seek the sublime object of its desire, the works of the celebrated Jami, so full of ecstatic rapture, the moral lessons of the eloquent Sa'di, and the lyric odes of Hafiz, may be termed the scriptures of the Sufi sect. And yet each of these authors contains passages which are unfit for publication in an English dress, and advocate morals at variance with what Christianity teaches us to be the true reflection of God's holy will. Whilst propriety demands the suppression of verses of the character alluded to, we give a few odes as specimens of the higher order of Sufi poetry. 
Jalal al-Din al-Rumi, the author of the Mesnavi, 670 after Hijra, thus writes, I am the Gospel, the Psalter, the Quran. I am Uzza and Lat, Arabic deities, Bel and the Dragon. Into three and seventy sects is the world divided, yet only one God, the faithful who believe in him am I. Thou knowest what are fire, water, air, and earth. Fire, water, air, and earth, all am I. Lies and truth, good, bad, hard, and soft. Knowledge, solitude, virtue, faith. The deepest ground of hell, the highest torment of the flames. The highest paradise, the earth, and what is therein the angels and the devils, spirit and man, am I? What is the goal of speech? O tell it, Shems Tabrizi. The goal of sense? This, the world soul, am I? And again, are we fools? We are God's captivity. Are we wise? We are his promenade. Are we sleeping? We are drunk with God. Are we waking, then we are his heralds? Are we weeping, then his clouds of wrath? Are we laughing, flashes of his love? Every night God frees the host of spirits, frees them every night from fleshly prison. Then the soul is neither slave nor master. Nothing knows the bondsman of his bondage. Nothing knows the lord of all his lordship. Gone from such a night is eating sorrow. Gone the thoughts that question good or evil. Then without distraction or division, in this one the spirit sinks and slumbers. The following is from the mystic poet Mahmud. All sects but multiply the I and thou. This I and thou belong to partial being. When I and thou and several being vanish, then mosque and church shall find thee nevermore. Our individual life is but a phantom. Make clear thine eye and see reality. The following verses are by Farida Din Shakargunj, 662 after Hijra. Man, what thou art, is hidden from thyself. Knowst not that morning, midday, and the eve are all within thee? The ninth heaven art thou, and from the spheres into the roar of time didst fall erewhile. Thou art the brush that painted the hues of all the world, the light of life that ranged its glory in the nothingness. Joy, joy, I triumph now. No more I know myself as simply me. I burn with love. The center is within me, and its wonder lies as a circle everywhere about me. Joy, joy, no mortal thought can fathom me. I am the merchant and the pearl at once. Lo, time and space lie crouching at my feet. Joy, joy, when I would revel in a rapture, I plunge into myself, and all things know. Mr. Lane, in his Modern Egyptians, gives a translation of a Sufi poem recited by an Egyptian darwish. 
With my love my heart is troubled, and mine eyelid hindereth sleep. My vitals are dissevered, while with streaming tears I weep. My union seems far distant, will my love e'er meet mine eye? Alas, did not estrangement draw my tears, I would not sigh. By dreary nights I'm wasted, absence makes my hope expire, my tears like pearls are dropping, and my heart is wrapped in fire. Whose is like my condition? Scarcely know I remedy. Alas, did not estrangement draw my tears, I would not sigh. O turtle dove, acquaint me, wherefore thus dost thou lament? Art thou so stung by absence, of thy wings deprived and pent? He saith our griefs are equal, worn away with love I lie. Alas, did not estrangement draw my tears, I would not sigh. O first and sole eternal, show thy favour yet to me. Thy slave Ahmad al-Bekri hath no lord excepting thee. By Taha the great prophet, do thou not his wish deny. Alas, did not estrangement draw my tears, I would not sigh. Dr. Tholuk quotes this verse from a Darwish breviary. Yesterday I beat the kettle drum of dominion. I pitched my tent on the highest throne. I drank, crowned by the beloved, the wine of unity from the cup of the Almighty. One of the most characteristic Sufi poems is the Persian poem by the poet Jami entitled Salaman and Absal. The whole narrative is supposed to represent the joys of love divine as compared with the delusive fascination of a life of sense. The story is that of a certain king of Ionia who had a son named Salaman, who in his infancy was nursed by a young maiden named Absal, who, as he grew up, fell desperately in love with the youth and in time ensnared him. Salaman and Absal rejoiced together in a life of sense for a full year and thought their pleasures would never end. A certain sage is then sent by the king to reason with the erring couple. Salaman confesses that the sage is right, but pleads the weakness of his own will. Salaman leaves his native land in company with Absal, and they find themselves on an island of wonderful beauty. Salaman, unsatisfied with himself and his love, returns once more to his native country, where he and Absal resolve to destroy themselves. They go to a desert and kindle a pile, and both walk into the fire. Absal is consumed, but Salaman is preserved in the fire and lives to lament the fate of his beloved one. In course of time he is introduced by the sage to a celestial beauty called Zohra, with whom he becomes completely enamored, and Absal is forgotten. Celestial beauty seen, he left the earthly, and once come to know eternal love, he let the mortal go. In the epilogue to the poem, the author explains the mystic meaning of the whole story in the following language. Under the outward form of any story an inner meaning lies, this story completed, do thou of its mystery whereto the wise hath found himself away have thy desire. No tale of I and thou, though I and thou be its interpreters. 
what signifies the king, and what the sage, and what Salaman, not of woman born, and what Absal, who drew him to desire, and what the kingdom that awaited him, when he had drawn his garment from her hand, what means the fiery pile, and what the sea, and what the heavenly Zohra, who at last cleared Absal from the mirror of his soul? Learn part by part the mystery from me, all ears from head to foot and understanding be. The incomparable creator, when this world he did create, created first of all the first intelligence, first of a chain of ten intelligences, of which the last sole agent is this our universe, active intelligence so called, the one distributor of evil and of good, of joy and sorrow, himself apart from matter in essence and in energy, his treasure subject to no such talisman, he yet hath fashioned all that is material form and spiritual sprung from him by him, directed all and in his bounty drowned. Therefore is he that fair man issuing king, to whom the world was subject, but because what he distributes to the universe himself from still higher power receives, the wise and all who comprehend aright will recognize that higher in the sage. His the prime spirit that spontaneously projected by the tenth intelligence was from no womb of matter reproduced, a special essence called the soul, a child fresh sprung from heaven in raiment undefiled, of sensual taint, and therefore called Salaman. And who Absal, the lust-adoring body, slave to the blood and sense, through whom the soul, although the body's very life it be, does yet imbibe the knowledge and desire of things of sense, and these united thus, by such a tie God only can unloose, body and soul are lovers each of other. What is the sea on which they sailed? The sea of animal desire, the sensual abyss, under whose waters lies a world of being, swept far from God in that submersion. And wherefore was Absal in that isle, deceived in her delight, and that Salaman fell short of his desire? That was to show how passion tires, and how with time begins the folding of the carpet of desire. And what the turning of Salaman's heart back to the king, and looking to the throne of pomp and glory, what but the return of the lost soul to its true parentage, and back from carnal error, looking up repentant to its intellectual throne? What is the fire? Ascetic discipline that burns away the animal alloy, till all the dross of matter be consumed, and the essential soul, its raiment clean of mortal taint, be left. But forasmuch as, in a lifelong habit so consumed, may well recur pang for what is lost, therefore the sage set in Salaman's eyes a soothing phantom of the past, but still told of a better Venus, till his soul she filled and blotted out his mortal love. 
For what is Zohra, that divine perfection, wherewith the soul inspired and all arrayed, its intellectual light is royal blessed, and mounts the throne, and wears the crown, and reigns lord of the empire of humanity? This is the meaning of this mystery, which to know, wholly ponder in thy heart, till all its ancient secrets be enlarged. Enough, the written summary I close, and set my seal, the truth God only knows. Section 10. The True Character of Sufism It will be seen that the great object of the Sufi mystic is to lose his own identity. Having effected this, perfection is attained. This ideal conception of the Sufi is thus expressed by Jalal al-Din rumi in his book The Mesnavi, page 78. It represents human love seeking admission into the sanctuary of divinity. One knocked at the door of the beloved and a voice from within inquired, Who is there? Then he answered, It is I. And the voice said, This house will not hold me and thee. So the door remained shut. Then the lover sped away into the wilderness, and fasted, and prayed in solitude, and after a year he returned, and knocked again at the door, and the voice again demanded, Who is there? And the lover said, It is thou. Then the door was opened. The Sufi doctrines are undoubtedly pantheistic and are almost identical with those of the Brahmins and Buddhists, the Neoplatonists, the Behards and Begins. There is the same union of man with God, the same emanation of all things from God, and the same final absorption of all things into the divine essence. And these doctrines are held in harmony with a Mohammedan view of predestination, which makes all a necessary evolution of the divine essence. The creation of the creature, the fall of those who have departed from God, and their final return are all events preordained by an absolute necessity. Bayezid al-Bastami, a mystic of the ninth century, said he was a sea without a bottom, without beginning and without end. Being asked, What is the throne of God? He answered, I am the throne of God. What is the table on which the divine decrees are written? I am the table. What is the pen of God, the word by which God created all things? I am the pen. What is Abraham, Moses, and Jesus? I am Abraham, Moses, and Jesus. What are the angels Gabriel, Michael, Israfil? I am Gabriel, Michael, Israfil. For whatever comes to true being is absorbed into God, and this is God. Again, in another place, Al-Bastami cries, Praise to me, I am truth. I am the true God. Praise to me, I must be celebrated by divine praise. The chief school of Arabian philosophy, that of Al-Ghazali, 505 after Hijra, passed over to Sufism by the same reasoning which led Plotinus to his mystical theology. After long inquiries for some ground on which to base the certainty of our knowledge, Al-Ghazali was led to reject entirely all belief in the senses. 
he then found it equally difficult to be certified of the accuracy of the conclusions of reason for there may be he thought some faculty higher than reason which if we possessed would show the uncertainty of reason as reason now shows the uncertainty of the senses he was left in scepticism and saw no escape but in the sufi union with deity there alone can man know what is true by becoming the truth itself i was forced he said to return to the admission of intellectual notions as the bases of all certitude this however was not by systematic reasoning and accumulation of proofs but by a flash of light which god sent into my soul for whoever imagines that truth can only be rendered evident by proofs places narrow limits to the wide compassion of the creator sufism says mr cowell has arisen from the bosom of mohammedanism as a vague protest of the human soul in its intense longing after a purer creed on certain tenets of the koran the sufis have erected their own system professing indeed to reverence its authority as a divine revelation but in reality substituting for it the oral voice of the teacher or the secret dreams of the mystic dissatisfied with the barren letters of the koran sufism appeals to human consciousness and from our nature's felt wants seeks to set before us nobler hopes than a gross mohammedan paradise can fulfil whilst there are doubtless many amongst the sufis who are earnest seekers after truth it is well known that some of them make their mystical creed a cloak for gross sensual gratification a sect of the sufis called the muhabiyya or revered maintain the doctrine of community of property and women and the sect known as the malamatiyya or reproached maintain the doctrine of necessity and compound all virtue with vice many such do not hold themselves in the least responsible for sins committed by the body which they regard only as the miserable robe of humanity which encircles the pure spirit some of the sufi poetry is most objectionable magakin de slain in his introduction to ibn khalakan's biographical dictionary says it often happens that a poet describes his mistress under the attributes of the other sex lest he should offend that excessive prudery of oriental feelings which since the fourth century of islamism scarcely allows an allusion to women and more particularly in poetry and this rigidness is still carried so far that cairo public singers dare not amuse their auditors with a song in which the beloved is indicated as a female it cannot however be denied that the feelings which inspired poetry of this kind were not always pure and that polygamy and jealousy have invested the morals of some eastern nations with the foulest corruption the story of the rev dr madodin the eminent native clergyman a convert from islam now residing at amritsar is a remarkable testimony to the unsatisfying nature of sophistic exercises to meet the spiritual need of anxious soul 
the following extract from the printed autobiography of his life will show this i sought for union with god from travellers and fakirs and even from the insane people of the city according to the tenets of the sufi mystics the thought of utterly renouncing the world then came into my mind with so much power that i left everybody and went out into the desert and became a fakir putting on clothes covered with red ochre and wandered here and there from city to city and from village to village step by step alone for about two thousand or two thousand five hundred miles without plan or baggage faith in the mohammedan religion will never indeed allow true sincerity to be produced in the nature of man yet i was then although with many worldly motives in search only of god in this state i entered the city of karuli where a stream called cholida flows beneath the mountain and there i stayed to perform the hisp al bahar i had a book with me on the doctrines of mysticism and the practice of devotion which i had received from my religious guide and held more dear even than the koran in my journeys i slept with it at my side at nights and took comfort in clasping it to my heart whenever my mind was perplexed my religious guide had forbidden me to show this book or to speak of its secrets to any one for it contained the sum of everlasting happiness and so this priceless book is even now lying useless on a shelf in my house i took up the book and sat down on the bank of the stream to perform the ceremonies as they were enjoined according to the following rules the celebrant must first perform his ablutions on the bank of the flowing stream and wearing an unsewn dress must sit in a particular manner on one knee for twelve days and repeat the prayer called jugopar thirty times every day with a loud voice he must not eat any food with salt or anything at all except some barley bread of flour lawfully earned which he has made with his own hands and baked with wood that he has brought himself from the jungles during the day he must fast entirely after performing his ablutions in the river before daylight and he must remain barefooted wearing no shoes nor must he touch any man nor except at an appointed time even speak to any one the object of all this is that he may meet with god and from the longing desire to obtain this i underwent all this pain in addition to the above i wrote the name of god on paper one hundred and twenty-five thousand times performing a certain portion every day and i cut out each word separately with scissors and wrapped them up each in a ball of flour and fed the fishes of the river with them in the way the book prescribed my days were spent in this manner and during half the night i slept and the remaining half i sat up and wrote the name of god mentally on my heart and saw him with the eye of thought when all this toil was over and i went thence i had no strength left in my body my face was wan and pale and i could not even hold myself up against the wind major dury osborne in his islam under the caliphs of baghdad page one twelve says 
The spread of this pantheistic spirit has been and is the source of incalculable evil throughout the Mohammedan world. The true function of religion is to vivify and illuminate all the ordinary relations of life with light from a higher world. The weakness to which religious minds are peculiarly prone is to suppose that this world of working life is an atmosphere too gross and impure for them to live in. They crave for better bread than can be made from wheat. They attempt to fashion a world for themselves where nothing shall soil the purity of the soul or disturb the serenity of their thoughts. The divorce thus effected between the religious life and the worldly life is disastrous to both. The ordinary relations of men become emptied of all divine significance. They are considered as the symbols of bondage to the world or to an evil deity. The religious spirit dwindles down to a selfish desire to acquire a felicity from which the children of this world are hopelessly excluded. Preeminently has this been the result of Mohammedan mysticism. It has dug a deep gulf between those who can know God and those who must wander in darkness, feeding upon the husks of rites and ceremonies. It has affirmed with emphasis that only by a complete renunciation of the world is it possible to attain the true end of man's existence. Thus all the best and purest natures, the men who might have put a soul in the decaying church of Islam, have been drawn off from their proper task to wander about in deserts and solitary places or expend their lives in idle and profitless passivity disguised under the title of spiritual contemplation. Cross-reference, zikr. But this has only been part of the evil. The logical result of pantheism is the destruction of a moral law. If God be all in all, and man's apparent individuality, a delusion of the perceptive faculty, there exists no will which can act, no conscience which can reprove or applaud. The individual is but a momentary seeming. He comes and goes like the snowflake on the river, a moment seen, then gone forever. To reproach such an ephemeral creature for being the slave of its passions is to chide the thistle-down for yielding to the violence of the wind. Mohammedans have not been slow to discover these consequences. Thousands of reckless and profligate spirits have entered the orders of the Darwishas to enjoy the license thereby obtained. Their affection of piety is simply a cloak for the practice of sensuality. Their emancipation from the ritual of Islam involves a liberation also from its moral restraints. And thus a movement, animated at its outset by a high and lofty purpose, has degenerated into a fruitful source of ill. The stream, which ought to have expanded into a fertilizing river, has become a vast swamp, exhaling vapors charged with disease and death. Cross-reference, Fakir. For further information on the subject of Eastern mysticism, the English reader is referred to the following works. Hans' Pantheism, Tholuck's Sufismus, 
Malcolm's History of Persia, Brown's Darwish's Oxford Essays for 1855 by E. B. Cowell, Palmer's Oriental Mysticism, Deslane's Introduction to Ibn Khalqan, Bicknell's Translation of Hafiz of Shiraz, Usli's Persian Poets, Vaughan's Hours with the Mystics, Persian and Arabic books on the subject are too numerous to mention. Abdul Razak's Dictionary of the Technical Terms of Sufis was published in Arabic by Dr. Sprenger in Calcutta in 1845. Cross-reference, Fakir, Zikr. End of Sufism, Part 2, from A Dictionary of Islam by Thomas Patrick Hughes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain.